tonight, I want to um, illustrate from the Bible how people become disciple-making disciples. I want to show you practically in the Bible where we see people becoming disciple-making disciples. And then stage two, I want to convince you that if you're a Christian tonight, that's what you and I should be doing, that we should be making disciple, making disciples. And I want to argue for the necessity of training people for gospel ministry. That's really what I want to do tonight. I want to show you from the Bible how people become disciple-making disciples. I want to convince you that that's what we should be doing, and I want to be arguing for the need of training. That's what I'm doing. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. For I hope that it'll be God's word that convinces you tonight, and not me. Acts chapter 18. Page 1114. 1114. If I was a bingo caller, I could come up with something creative there. 114, but I can't. Never done it. Acts 18. Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So the Apostle Paul, he leaves Athens, the Greek equivalent of, of Cambridge or Oxford or Edinburgh, clearly. And he travels to Corinth, which is really a modern-day modern city across somewhere between Las Vegas and New York in terms of its reputation, a business center and a reputation for other things as well. And he arrived in Corinth alone. And when you read the letter of 1 Thessalonians, you pick up a bit of how he felt as he came to Corinth. He had to leave Thessalonica in a rush because of opposition. And he was very anxious about how those new Christians were getting on, coping with the hostile environment that they were facing. Paul was basically run out of town. He traveled to Athens and Corinth alone because he'd sent Timothy, his uh, co-worker, his ministry trainee. He had sent him um, 
back to, the, to Thessalonica just to check on how the young converts were getting on. So he arrived in Corinth with anxieties and cares of how things were going on back there, fearful that they might have been tempted to walk away from their faith in Jesus. And he walked into this big city, a city of probably about 100,000 people tightly cramped together. And he arrived poor. Not a very impressive thing for a big commercial city to walk in poor. People don't pay much attention to you if you don't have money. And Paul later wrote in 1 Corinthians about his experience of coming to the city in this way. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, he says. Alone, anxious, and poor. Wow, what a dynamic church planting team we've got here. And yet that's exactly what would take place. And this is how it began. It began with plodding word ministry. He'd run out of funds. And so Paul goes to the Jewish sector of Corinth and he found some fellow Jews, Aquila and Priscilla, immigrant refugees who had recently come themselves, having been kicked out of Rome. And they just started up their own business, tent making. And as that was Paul's trade as well, he sort of made a connection with them and began making tents with them. He stayed with them, he worked with them probably six days a week. And then for two or three hours a week, he would go to the synagogue where his fellow Jews met, and he took the opportunity there to reason from the Scriptures about Christ and proving that Jesus of Nazareth was that Christ. Steady, plodding, self-financed word ministry. There's nothing really dramatic going on here, is there? It continues to be an honorable way that many people minister in countries that are close to the gospel. It is actually how I hope that most of you in the congregation see your life. My hope and prayer is that you see your life in exactly this way, that you're self-financing yourself to be able to spread the gospel here in Edinburgh and beyond. Working for a living, but taking the opportunities that the Lord gives you to do something useful for Him and for His kingdom. That's certainly how I saw myself when I was working as a dentist in Scotland for a number of years. I worked three days a week to pay my way to do Uh, four days of ministry in the local church I I attended. I was greatly helped by the fact that my wife was also working, I should add. Uh, Such plodding, self-financed word ministry can look small and insignificant. But is it? Look at God's providence at work here in the small details of people's lives. Think about Aquila. He'd grown up in Pontus, it says. That's uh, modern-day northern Turkey. That's where he'd grown up. And he had moved to work in Rome. Somewhere online, he'd met and married the lovely Priscilla. And, uh, and we hear that from this text that they had to leave Rome because of an edict from the emperor Claudius. And that had brought them to Corinth. And soon after setting up and starting up their business in their home, they meet Paul, who also happens to be a tent maker by trade. So not only did Paul take the opportunities of teaching and dialoguing in the synagogue, but no doubt his life and his conversation at work and in the home commended the gospel to Priscilla and Aquila. And by God's grace, this slow, plodding start produced two great gospel workers that would be lifelong ministry partners of Paul. That's God's providence, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? God's grace was so evident in their lives that when Paul eventually left Corinth, they went with him. Look at verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, 
Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at uh, Kentry, Century, I don't know how you say that, because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I'll come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Notice with me here just Priscilla and Aquila. The work of establishing a church in Ephesus starts with the personal ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. They had got saved under Paul's ministry. They'd been with him for about two years. They had such a vision for the spread of the gospel that they uproot and go and move with Paul. And he leaves them in Ephesus. And they start this personal ministry that begins a church in Ephesus. We don't read about Aquila having a public upfront ministry. We don't read of him being a preacher or a teacher. But as a couple, they clearly made a choice to work where their lives could have most impact for the kingdom of God. That was their agenda. That's where their priorities were. They weren't chasing where they could make more money. They thought, well, where can we advance the gospel? Where can we partner with Paul in spreading the kingdom of God? And so they have to start again in Ephesus, start a new home, relaunch their business, begin to make new friends in order to make their Lord and Savior Jesus known. And it would be at their home that would eventually a meeting place would start for the church in Ephesus. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul sends hearty greetings to Aquila and Priscilla along with the church in their house. Their home became where the church began. Just a couple of ordinary believers living their lives with sacrificial and passionate commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what God can do through a couple like that. Verse 24 and 25 tells of another man who would become a great evangelistic preacher and a teaching pastor that would be a blessing to many Christian churches, this guy called Apollos. But he was not like that when they first met him. Word must have got out that an excellent Jewish preacher from Alexandria had come to the synagogue, so Aquila and Priscilla go to hear him. Alexandria was, was a place famous for Jewish studies with people like uh, Philo, who was uh, both trained in Greek philosophy as well as being a student of Hebrew scriptures. And we get a lot of our ancient history through the uh, historical writings of Philo. Maybe even trained Apollos. We don't know. They were contemporaries. Now, Apollos clearly was an impressive guy, an eloquent man. Um, 
It speaks of his education and, and his learning. He was trained in logic and rhetoric. He was clearly a great orator, and he had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. And they, and they listened with, with delight, no doubt, as, as he spoke about Jesus in relation to the Old Testament scriptures. But as they listened, he'd not yet got the whole message. There were some gaps. As verse 25 says, he knew only the baptism of John. Now, was he a Christian at this point? Commentators are split. John Stott, Howard Marshall say yes. Uh, James Boyce says no. You can make your own decision about that. But either way, the main point is that Dr. Luke wants to show us the impact of the personal ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. It was clear to them at what stage in the, in the Christian development Apollos was. They were listening and saying, oh, look, he's, he's not quite there yet. We need to move him on. We need to help him. And so they didn't jump up in the synagogue and, and shout him down and say, I'm sorry, you haven't quite got that right. That really doesn't work generally most of the time. They, they very helpfully come along to him and say, hey, would you like to come around for a dinner? We so enjoyed hearing what you had to say. Uh, we know about this Jesus too. We'd love to talk with you. And then they began as a couple to meet with him and to teach him God's words. Gently sharing the way of God more accurately. What's going on here? A husband and wife engaged in personal Christian ministry, in word ministry, advancing the gospel by opening their homes, teaching their word, taking this rough diamond, shining him up, and him becoming a great blessing throughout the, 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 the rest of the regions. He heads out preaching and evangelizing in synagogues and, uh, and, and blessing many, many churches. When God saves us, we are saved to become servants of Christ. It's amazing that they had got to this place after just two years with the Apostle Paul. When God saves us, we are saved to become servants of Christ, to live our lives not simply for our own pleasure or concerns, but to live our lives to serve Christ by serving others. Later, they moved back to Rome, where Paul could say of them at the end of his letter in Romans 16, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. This is an awesome couple, isn't it? Awesome couple. They got it. They got how significant Jesus was. They got how he changes and transforms everything. And they lived their lives for Christ. Have we got it? And I praise God that as I get to know many of you, that a number of you, many of you have got this. I see, I see people making life choices so they can commend the gospel and live for Christ and see the gospel advance. But my prayer and desire as your pastor is to really see the whole church mobilized in this way. The Great Commission is our motto verse for 2010. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It is the king's command that we as uh, Christians are in the business of um, growing, disciple-making disciples. That's what we're called to do. 
that's what we saw in Scripture, wasn't it? Priscilla and Aquila, hearing the gospel, being changed and transformed by the gospel, living their lives to see the advance of the gospel, being willing to move cities even, move businesses, start afresh to see a fresh gospel work happen. See the gospel advance. That's what we are to be about. The goal of Christian ministry comes down to something really quite simple that as we seek to glorify God, we are about the business on this earth of making and nurturing genuine disciples of Christ. That's what we're to be about. And I think one of the dangers that we can fall into as Christians is to think about church in terms of meetings, committees, running programs. The older and more institutional church becomes, then we get more meetings, more committees, more programs, and the question that leaders often end up asking are these questions, how can we maintain our programs? How can we improve our programs? How can we uh, get people to fill the gaps in our programs? And yet, if we're going to keep this great commission before us, then we're going to be shifting away from this mentality about programs to be thinking about people. We're going to be moving away from just strategies to how to maintain structures to how can we make disciples who can make disciples. Our pro focus will be on people and not on programs. Are we reaching people with the gospel? Are we building people up with the gospel? Are we sending people out with the gospel? And I think the danger for elders and pastors is to spend all our time engaging in management instead of engaging in ministry. And really, the, the process is not, as they say in the States, it's not rocket science. Um, must be great to be a rocket scientist. Um, see, there's the process. Just put it up, if we could. Next slide. Begins with outreach, doesn't it? People come into the contact with the word of truth, the gospel for the very first time. Maybe through a conversation at work. Maybe uh, through a club. They meet a Christian. Maybe, I don't know how, a sort of family member, but some issue in their life or their world uh, brings them before a Christian and that Christian opens their mouth and, and eventually shares the gospel with them and the seed takes root and in God's time and by God's spirit it bears fruit is the outrage stage outreach stage outrage the outreach stage and once people respond to the gospel message and put their faith in Christ some sort of initial follow-up is needed to establish them in their faith in the basics this initial initial stage of, of becoming firm in the faith uh, can take a few months, it can take several years, but however long it takes, it's vital really for someone to stick with the new Christian, to teach them, to care for them, to pray for them, to get them established. And then follows a lifelong process of growth as a Christian disciple, growing the knowledge of God, growing in, in godly character uh, 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 that flows from the gospel, from a knowledge of the gospel. And this process of growth, it's not easy, is it? Uh, read Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it's, it's full of many uh, challenges, uh, many temptations to be sidetracked, many disappointments. 
And as Christians, we can get into all sorts of trouble along the way. And we need, at times, help and counsel and prayer and love. We need each other to keep walking the life of the pilgrim uh, on to heaven. We need the ministry of the Word and Spirit to keep us pressing on in sickness, in seasons of dryness, in both good times and bad times. We need someone to come alongside, minister the Word, and pray that it will be at work within our lives. Now, so there's the process. Outreach through to growth. And the growth bit just kind of keeps happening. Now, what holds back this, this process of discipleship making? What holds back this whole process? And I think it's this. The number of people who see themselves qualified and able to minister with God's word by God's spirit. Here's, a, here's another challenge, I think, for a congregation that can become more institutional in its view of church life. It's a view that sees the pastor as just the special clergyman. Something happens. You go off to college, you come out, some church prays for you, something special happens to you, and you're this unique, special guy. And you're the minister. And uh, the congregation of the passive receivers... This is sort of the institutional view of church. It is actually the expectation of many uh, non-Christians. Many times already, so far in my time here, I've had people come up to me and say, oh, someone has just come in and they want to speak to the minister. Would you come and speak to them? And so I'm taken over as as the crown jewels, the fount of wisdom and knowledge to sort out whatever issues they've got. Now... It's either me or Rodney or uh, asked to do that. And if this is the mindset of the wider congregation and a large congregation like Charlotte, that you've only been ministered to if it's by a paid pastor, then you have a recipe for a big fat bottleneck, don't you? There's a lot of people not really experiencing care and growth uh, and challenge in their lives because there's the bottleneck. And uh, there's a recipe for frustrated people and uh, pastors heading for a nervous breakdown. I would suggest. Plus, it's not a biblical model. If the pastoral team only spend their time directly meeting, presenting needs and concerns directly, then gospel growth and disciple-making will be very limited. What is needed is many more people who have the confidence and willingness to listen carefully to others, to be able to open the Bible, share something helpful, and pray with people, in short, to engage in Christian ministry and the key way for this to happen is through training just put the next graphic there training is to be a key part I believe of what uh, pastors and elders and leaders should be doing if, if it's just outreach to growth and you've got a limited number of people doing that then that's the problem but if Leaders spend time training disciples to go about the business of knowing how to share the gospel, uh, to go about the business of how to do basic follow-up with young Christians, to go about the business of how to help people in the various stages of growth in their life, how to make progress, how to move forward. And uh, the more you invest in training and increasing the number of workers, guess what happens? The more ministry happens, isn't it? 
People sometimes wonder, Paul, if you're not preaching on Sunday, what on earth are you doing? Well, what do you think I'm doing? Um, I'm praying, and I'm trying to meet with people and encourage training. This week, I'm meeting with people to help them think about how do you lead Bible studies so they can become Bible study group leaders. Uh, it could, I could basically run a Bible study every night of the week where I run it, or actually I could spend time investing in training leaders who then can go and lead Bible studies. Uh, really, the, the vision that is in the trellis and the vine, the book that I mentioned earlier, is, is, is a vision to encourage pastors to see themselves not only committed to expository preaching and to prayer for the congregation, but to an active, ongoing commitment to training all of God's people so that ministry is multiplied and grown in the, in the congregation and so that the gospel will advance in far greater measure because there are many more word ministers out there doing it. Let me just show you that that should be the case. Turn to Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 16. We've seen practically the Apostle Paul doing this very thing in the life of Priscilla and Aquila and the fruit that came from there. Now let's just see specific teaching about this. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. It is warm in here tonight, isn't it? It was too cold this morning, too hot tonight. Anyway, praise God, we're here. It's dry. Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 16. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Two elementary questions then. Who builds up the body of Christ from these verses? Who builds up the body of Christ? Verse 12. God's people. As they are prepared by pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles and prophets, God's people are prepared for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Who builds up the body of Christ? It is God's people who build up the body of Christ. Verse 16 grows and built itself up in love as each part does its work. It is every member of the body as it does its work together that the body of Christ is built up. Second question, how do we build up the body of Christ from these verses? Well, notice from verse 11, all these uh, gifted men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are all word ministers. They're all teaching the word roles. And then look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. We are all to be engaged in this work of speaking God's word 
to each other in prayerful dependence on God's Spirit. The vision of discipleship that the New Testament have is that every disciple is involved in disciple-making. Every disciple is involved actively in in, in helping grow people who are disciple-making disciples. That's what the New Testament is teaching. All believers are involved in building this church, not just uh, a few paid clergy. Uh, It does sound like a disease. I think it may well be clergy or preachers. When I met with the men's uh, group a couple of weeks ago, I asked them this question. I asked them, um, how do you walk into church? How do you walk into church? And second question, how do you decide where to sit? How do you decide where to sit? How do you walk into church and how do you decide where to sit? You see, if we have this vision uh, as a disciple that we're about the, bus- the business of growing uh, disciple-making disciples, then this is how we walk to church. I'm not going to do silly walks here. We walk to church prayerfully, asking God, where should I sit today? Lord, where do you want me to sit today? Because actually, I'm going to come to church with the aim of sitting down around people so that I can minister God's word to them by God's Holy Spirit. It's not just come and see someone preach and then you know, say a few pleasant things and shoot out the door. If we have this vision of disciple-making, if we have this vision of body life and body growth where each part takes its place, then we will prayerfully consider where we're going to sit and we're going to be praying for opportunities to get to know the people around us. Some of you have been here for years and you don't know the other people who've been here for years. That's because you sit in the same spot. And I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider where you should sit and have the courage to say, Hi, my name is Bill. If your name is Bill, say that. If it's not, it's lying, don't do that. (laughs) My name is Bill. Uh... How long have you been coming here? 20 years. So have I. It's so good to meet you. And, and, and get to know them. And, and think about how you can talk about God's word with them. Pray for an opportunity to minister. Walk to church in that prayerful attitude and look for ways to minister. I want to encourage you to think about pew ministry as just one small way of how you can play a part in being involved in this great commission of seeking to grow people who are disciple-making disciples. I think it's a biblical vision. I think we get stuck institutionally, and we get content with coming to church, hearing a sermon, singing a few songs, having a polite coffee, and heading home, and getting on with our Christian lives, and there's nothing radical about our lives at all. And yet Christ calls us Take our cross and follow him. He said to one man uh, who was uh, talking about going to his dad's funeral, don't go to your dad's funeral. Let the dead bury the dead. You go off and preach the kingdom. That's what he's calling us to, to live radically for him with this great commission agenda. And what I want to say to you is if you don't feel confident that you know how to share the gospel with someone, if you don't feel confident to know about how you would begin to just help a baby Christian grow, if you don't know how you would be able to meet with someone one-to-one, read the Bible, pray with them, and encourage them the word, let, let, let me know. 
because I want to connect you with someone who's already doing that so you can get trained. I'm committed as a pastor to want to help train a church that is able to share the gospel in some way or another with somebody, is able to do basic follow-up with somebody, is able to uh, help someone, just read the Bible with someone one-to-one and encourage them from God's word and prayerfully walk out this discipleship. That's my longing. And I, I, I rejoice to see that the people are already engaged in this way. And I want to encourage you and stoke us up to think, how can we move beyond just maintaining this big ship to being engaged together in the Great Commission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for those who have invested in our lives, those who did share the gospel with us, those who helped us to make baby steps in the Christian life, those who have poured into our lives. Lord, each one of us can think of individuals and churches that have done this for us and we give you thanks and praise we thank you for those here tonight because they've experienced those very things within this building for those who've uh, invested their lives in them so that they could grow we thank you and praise you for this and we ask that you would help us that we may more and more see this happening in our church for the sake of the lost in this city father we look to you we thank you for the encouragement that you gave the Apostle Paul, that you had many in this city that kept him there, engaged in this uh, ministry of the word and discipling of others. And we pray that you give us the same vision for this city and for our lives. We ask this, uh, that Christ may get the glory and that people would be encouraged in his precious name.